This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Tomorrow They Won't Dare to Murder Us, a novel by Joseph Andras, translated from the French by Simon Lazare. A young revolutionary plants a bomb in a factory on the outskirts of Algiers during the Algerian War. The bomb is timed to explode after work hours, so no one will be hurt. But the authorities have been watching. He is caught, the bomb is diffused, and he is tortured, tried in a day, and sentenced to death by guillotine. By turns lyrical, meditative, and heart-stoppingly suspenseful, this debut novel by Joseph Andras, based on a true story, was a literary and political sensation in France. Tomorrow They Won't Dare to Murder Us, by Joseph Andras. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is our second episode this week on Palestine. Please do check out the interview we posted earlier this week with teacher and BDS activist Aya Al-Ghazawi and journalist Issam Adwan, if you have not done so already. Today's episode is my interview with Palestinian scholars and analysts Noura Arakat and Tarek Bakoni. We discuss a lot including this latest round of Israeli assaults in Gaza, East Jerusalem, and throughout historic Palestine, the mainstream media construction of false equivalencies, the extreme right-wing trajectory of Israeli politics, the dynamics structuring the relationship between Hamas and Netanyahu, and what it means for the Palestinian national liberation struggle that Palestinians have so powerfully united across the divides that Israel has imposed fighting for a free Palestine from the river to the sea. We also discuss the historic shift in U.S. public opinion underway toward the Palestinian cause that we see right now in the wake of last summer's massive Black Lives Matter protests. It's a powerful reminder that, once again in American history, the struggle for black freedom here in the U.S. is a universal one that orients the American left toward the struggles of people everywhere. The U.S. left, as Mike Davis has repeatedly said on this show, needs to be a far more internationalist one that fights U.S. empire from the belly of the beast. Black Lives Matter has led the way, and that, I think, carries with it some very important lessons for how we think about politics. Finally, a ceasefire has at the time I am recording this introduction on Friday afternoon been announced, but Israel's apartheid regime, of course, continues. And so does the Palestinian resistance. Briefly, please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig if you regularly depend upon us for in-depth analysis like this about everything, everywhere. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, please do contribute to the Palestinian people. I have included a link of organizations that you should donate to in the show notes. Okay, here's Noura Erekat and Tarek Bakoni. 
Noura Erekat is a human rights lawyer and professor at Rutgers University's Department of Africana Studies and Program in Criminal Justice. She's a co-founding editor of Jadalia, an electronic magazine on the Middle East that combines scholarly expertise and local knowledge. She is also the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, a book that I interviewed her about in 2019 and that I will link to that episode in the show notes. Tarek Bakoni is a senior analyst for the International Crisis Group on Israel-Palestine and the author of Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance. Nura Erekat and Tarek Bakoni, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having us, Daniel. Thanks for having us, Daniel. Let's start off with where things stand as we speak on Wednesday. Nura, you recently told me that what's happening right now is truly unprecedented. What is happening right now across all of historic Palestine? And why, given the long history of Israeli brutality and Palestinian resistance, is what's happening right now so different? So let's just be clear. When I say unprecedented, I do not mean in Palestinian history. I mean in recent history that the scale and scope of Israel's assault against all Palestinians across all Palestinian geographies in the besieged Gaza Strip within Israel, in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, as well as towards the diaspora population in this moment, that is unprecedented in recent history, as well as is the Palestinian resistance to it. Normally, Palestinian resistance emerges in different pockets, but what we're seeing now is a unified, uniform response, protests, Uh, amongst the Palestinian citizens of Israel who have asked me not to term them that way, but to regard them as enemies of the state or subjects of apartheid from the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, as well as the Palestinians in uh, Jerusalem and throughout these West Bank. All of these are Zionist uh, legal and political, frankly, colonial demarcations that have separated Palestinians from one another. What folks need to understand about the significance of this moment is that that the fact that you have Palestinians resisting across these geographies and the fact that Israel is assaulting Palestinians across these geographies is affirming once again the singular nature of the Palestinian nation and the singular nature of our cause, which is against a settler colonial project of removal of native Palestinians to replace them with Jewish Zionist settlers. This has now come to be clear in the form of resistance and has been also affirmed in writing. Palestinians have termed this the Palestinian Intifada or Uprising of Unity. So just because the scale of this hasn't been seen since probably what's known as the Second Palestinian Intifada between 2002 and 2005, but Palestinians have resisted in this way for a hundred years. We, uh, as early as 1917, protesting against the Balfour Declaration and the designation of Palestine as a site of Jewish settlement, when Palestinians said uh, Jewish uh, people are welcome here as immigrants to find in, in Palestine a cultural home, but not a state not a national state. We see Palestinians rise again in 1929 in what have been termed riots, but which has been consistently found to be mass uprisings, most significantly between 1936 and 1939, known as the Palestinian Great Revolt, 
again throughout the 1970s when the PLO takes the helm of the liberation movement and, and transforms it from an Arab nationalist cause into a Palestinian nationalist cause using national armed liberation uh, struggle as a primary tactic and strategy for liberation. Now this. So although what we're seeing is unprecedented in recent history, it is a continuation of, of Palestinian struggle against Zionist settler colonialism. Tarek, something that's that's key here that Noura just mentioned is the role of Palestinian citizens of Israel, or as, as Noura put it, enemies of the state who have risen up in greater numbers in more places at any time since at least the early days of the 2000 Intifada. And this is huge, you argue, Tarek, because it shows that we're seeing this reinvigorated national consciousness in Palestinians rejecting the psychic separation that Israel has tried to impose with physical barriers. It also, I think, blows up this liberal notion that everything will be fine if it were not for the occupation. What, Tarek, does this all mean for the Palestinian national movement? I think it's it's incredible because it's a reclamation of a segment of our society that has been entirely marginalized, marginalized from Palestinian consciousness, but also from the rest of the Arab world. One of the biggest tragedies of the creation of the State of Israel is that it brought up constituents of of Palestinians, a segment of the Palestinian population, and uh, appeared to internalize them into the settler colonial state, claimed them as Arab Israelis or Israeli Arabs, while also, obviously, as we know, legally and constitutionally disenfranchising them and keeping them at a distance from the state, but claiming them rhetorically as Israeli citizens, as subjects of uh, the Israeli government. And in in doing that, and obviously after the creation of the State of Israel, between 1948 and 1966, those citizens were placed under military rule. It was a military regime that uh, controlled every aspect of their life. So in no way were they seen as equal citizens of the state, but at least rhetorically, they were claimed as such and disconnected from the rest of the Palestinian people, disconnected from the rest of uh, the Arab world. And that, that, that rupture, the political and the social and the economic rupture is one that has been with the Palestinian Palestinian people for years, so that even at the heyday of the Palestinian liberation struggle, when the PLO was was seen as the sole representative of the Palestinian people and was speaking uh, from uh, refugee camps and across the world, uh, was in many ways still unable to speak to or on behalf of the Palestinian citizens of Israel. So what's happening today is unprecedented in the sense that even though this is building on a century of uh, struggle against a singular regime of settler colonialism in the land of historic Palestine, it's unprecedented in the sense that these Palestinians that have been co-opted into that state are actually rejecting that co-optation physically, geographically, rhetorically, and talking about their own struggle as a struggle that's connected to the rest of the Palestinian people. So it's it's a development that's happening from within the state of Israel. So whereas before we would have uh, had the majority of, of the, the struggle or, or the biggest part of the struggle uh, taking place from without the state of Israel, from surrounding areas. We now have that being complemented with a struggle from within the state of Israel. And that goes to the heart of challenging what the, the Zionist regime is. It goes to the heart of challenging the idea that there can be a system of Jewish supremacy in the land of historic Palestine. And for me, it's a great moment of hope because it, it is, uh, despite all of the, the sprawling system of control, 
the economic and military and security and, and uh, rhetorical control that is, and diplomatic control that is aimed at putting Palestinians in silos and fragmenting them, we're seeing a process of shedding that, of, of destroying that system of control and overcoming it into a, a, a oneness uh, that is really inspiring. And I think Palestinian citizens of Israel are at the heart of that. The current round of violence and repression was sparked by a move to evict or remove Palestinians in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which the Israeli foreign ministry has framed as a real estate dispute. How, Nura and Tarek, is the law being used to mystify settler colonialist displacement as a real estate dispute and to obscure the fact that Israeli law is explicitly racist in its treatment of Palestinian and Jewish land claims, a mystification that in turn obscures the entire history of the Zionist project? Just to point out that the law is being deployed by the state in order to shape this as a real estate dispute. It's not in the law itself, but all the, the spokespeople of the state, military, political and otherwise, want to diminish this as a moment of conflict over private property rather than as a project of removal that connects all Palestinians. It helps to go back to the history of the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in particular, which um, was developed in 1956, an agreement between Jordan, which had authority over the West Bank during this time in the aftermath of the establishment of Israel and the United Nations Relief Works Agency, which had some humanitarian protection for the Palestinian refugees. Sheikh Jarrah is the home, becomes the new home of displaced Palestinians who have become refugees from the newly established state. In 1982, Jewish uh, Zionist settler groups attempted to take Sheikh Jarrah because it was part of an expanded Jerusalem. That in 1967, when Israel comes to occupy um, East Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank, it expands uh, Jerusalem's municipal boundaries by 10 times, some 17,500 new West Bank acres. It's including within Jerusalem's jurisdiction with a specific intent in order to Judaize that entire territory. So everybody within this territory is going to be marked as targets for removal. That's why in 1982, when the Jewish Zionist settler groups sue within Israeli courts for Sheikh Jarrah, for the homes in Sheikh Jarrah, it was through a very deceptive, corrupt, unethical representation by an Israeli lawyer on behalf of 17 families in Sheikh Jarrah who entered them into an agreement whereby the Jewish Zionist settler groups owned the land but the Palestinians were given permission to remain in their homes as a privilege until further notice. This is what we see then fomenting beginning what now the state wants to refer as a real estate dispute, but is in fact collusion by the state through other means. When the Trump administration moves the embassy, U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, in that moment, Palestinians said clearly, this is not about losing a capital of an inchoate Palestinian state. This move is a violent message to Palestinians that you do not belong. Everyone in that expanded, who were now stuck between Israel's annexation wall and the rest of East Jerusalem and what what Israel had marked uh, from Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan, Al-Isawiyah, and other Palestinian uh, communities in East Jerusalem become marked for settler colonial removal. So the 
families in Sheikh Jarrah have actually for decades been struggling against this removal. They have for decades had the support of international solidarity in each of those instances as we're seeing now, it was the protests from from the Palestinians and the international solidarity communities that have prevented Israel uh, from successfully taking the homes, but not all of them. The um, Hanun family was uh, taken out of its home and placed, they had to be in tents on the side of the street. These are settlers entering the homes with the backing of Israeli police and violently removing them. The Al-Kurd family is now facing the same process that others in the neighborhood have faced and a process that Palestinians know intimately well because they have been subject to it, whether it be in Sheikh Jarrah, whether it be in Al-Khalil or Hebron, whether it be in Khan Al-Ahmar, whether it be in Yaffa, where just last summer Israel was within the state trying to demolish and desecrate a Palestinian cemetery in order to expand a parking lot, or whether it be in the Gaza Strip where they expand the buffer zone, so to speak, but are in fact taking more land with less Palestinians on it. Tarek. I agree with everything that Noura just said. And I think part of the reason that I think Sheikh Jarrah was a lightning rod, the way that uh, mobilized Palestinians beyond that specific neighborhood is because it's a microcosm of that broader reality that Palestinians are living in. It's, as we know, this idea of, of uh, settler colonialism is an ongoing process. It's not something that happened in 1948 and ended. It's something that continues to impact the lives of every single Palestinian wherever they are, but specifically the, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, which is the, the loss of home, the loss of being able to stay on a bit of land in order to allow a Jewish settler to come into that land, that is the core of what the Palestinian experience is. That goes to the heart of what Palestinian nationalism and Palestinian struggle for liberation is. And so when we're thinking about, you know, Noura's mentioning uh, the examples of Yaffa in the recent past, but we can go all the way back to thinking about uh, the, the Galilee and to thinking about other uh, Palestinian cities in uh, uh, what is now Israel, it, uh, Palestinian cities uh, like Haifa, where these homes were inhabited by Palestinians one day, and then the next day were inhabited by Israeli Jews. This idea of dispossession is one that every Palestinian, no matter where they are, carries with them. And so in that sense, Sheikh Jarrah becomes a microcosm of that. And the, the, just to, to your point about the law, I mean, the audacity of claiming this as a real estate dispute, one that is legal on Israeli terms, even that is uh, something that can be, even if you were to accept that on its, on its face value, the racialized application of that law, that if you set that precedent of going back uh, to, to those kinds of legal deeds and land claims and use those deeds in order to allow for Jewish settlers to go into Palestinian homes, that could set a precedent for Palestinians to return to their own homes in what is now West Jerusalem or the rest of Israel. But even that law is applied in a way that's racialized. And so the, the idea that the, the Israeli Supreme Court could be a platform for any kind of just resolution to this issue uh, is laughable. I don't know if any conflict in the world where media coverage accomplishes so much, I guess, like gaslighting. The New York Times and other publications, they describe the incredible violence done by Israel against Palestinians, but then they go on 
to insist in the very same articles on framing the conflict not as an asymmetric one rooted in a settler colonialist apartheid state, but as this tragedy with both sides. What role does the mainstream media play in legitimating Israeli apartheid? And do you see any cracks beginning to emerge this time around? It's absolutely exhausting, Daniel. It's absolutely exhausting to um, be also subject to the barrage of the mainstream media narrative, which has been completely dishonest, if not acquiescent and compliant, thereby complicit in a project of war making and removal of Palestinians. The media is part and parcel of it. Um, one of the the ways that the, the, the media has framed this is to completely take this out of time and out of space. And so they refer to every particular moment as the moment of crisis, wanting to ask, how did we get here? What? How do you explain the escalation in the past eight days in a way that continuously obscures that there has been a structure, that there is a struggle, that this is a freedom struggle? Um, and so much that has been asked of us, myself, Tariq, Diana Butto, Yusuf Munayyar, um, Ayel Ghazawi, Asam Adwan, who you had on yesterday, Maryam Barghouti, Yara Hawari, and so many other Palestinians who have been called to speak to the media is not only to share the story, but frankly, to be to serve as a corrective whether it be to the misleading headlines that frame the killing of Palestinians in the passive voice as if they were killed by some hurricane and not by Israeli missiles that are provided by the United States, whether it be to correct headlines that read Israel-Gaza conflict in order to play on a public imagination that's associated Gaza with Hamas and thereby a militant base rather than a home, neighborhoods for two million Palestinians, families, parks, schools, community centers, bookshops, clinics, right? All the things that express life. It's been um, incredibly exhausting to have to battle that kind of framing before we get to a discussion of, well, where did this all come from? So one of the things that I've noticed is that, that there has been a steady shift and the largest part because of Palestinian resistance, but also because of solidarity, as well as social media and the ability to overcome and transcend, you know, these media conglomerates who otherwise are are obscuring um, this framework. And I've seen a shift that where, you know, we were talking about this earlier, I'm so used to um, getting on television to, to basically be subject to a hostile interview, right? Where I've trained myself to listen to a few key words, to not respond to the accusation and instead be able to intervene with some information to, uh, you know, hopefully millions of people watching. What we've seen then shift is now then Palestinians getting a platform and being able to tell their story, being able to say not just we are not the terrorists, but then being able to say this is apartheid. This is settler colonialism. And now again, a new shift of what I'm seeing is pointing out and highlighting as an ep epistemic matter. Why did the media frame it in this way? Why has it been obscuring this? And now this gets to much deeper question about, you know, let's be honest, the media has been invested in protecting Israel as well in order to avoid a conversation about an agreement between Western civilization of how to atone for anti-Jewish violence. And in that moment, rather than dealing with the white supremacy that 
is the root cause of, of anti-Semitism in, in, in an Enlightenment Europe, so to speak, uh, they then pivot the entire question of anti-Semitism to whether or not Israel can be sustained as an apartheid reality in the Middle East, as a wedge between the African and Asian continents against the will of the people, and then frames that the greatest threat to Jewish people is now Muslim marauders hell-bent on violence and Jew-hating rather than, and, and what that does is avoids the entire conversation about white supremacist violence that has produced this and, and obscures the conversation that rather than combating that violence, Zionism has internalized it and reproduced it and is, is both subjecting Palestinians to removal and erasure, but also subjecting its non-European uh, descendant Jews to a structure of racism as well. I think we're seeing the same thing in U.S. politics as we are in the media, perhaps that while, of course, politicians, so many are still reciting the same old talking points, condemning Hamas and defending Israel's, quote, right to defend itself. We're also seeing, I think, more outspoken support for Palestinian freedom than ever before in American politics, including multiple members of the squad led, of course, by Rashida Tlaib, naming Israel as an apartheid state. And polls show that Democratic voters are moving rapidly to support Palestine, younger Jews, in the U.S., increasingly alienated from Israel, and even staunchly pro-Israel Democrats in Congress are crossing APAC and expressing some criticism right now, however pathetically tepid. But still, obviously Biden is still committed to supporting BB and Israel no matter what it does, it seems. But do you two think that these shifts offer some hope? I do. I do think that they offer some hope. I mean, I'd want to go back a bit to the, the points that Nora was making about the, the, the media shifting as well. I think one of the fundamental things that is happening is that, and we're talking here specifically, I'm, I'm talking, you know, Western media, predominantly English uh, language uh, uh, media. There's been a shift in the sense that the, the Israeli narrative, the, the Zionist narrative was one that was embraced I think, historically by the media, uh, uncritically, in a way that took it at face value and re, re, uh, internalized and reproduced the Orientalist gaze. So looking at the Palestinians very much uh, as a subject of Western civilization and uh, as, as not necessarily as people who deserve political rights, but as religious minorities or as nomadic people or as, you know, humanitarian social phenomena, but not necessarily as people who had political rights. That is what is now being challenged. The idea that you can dehumanize Palestinians to the level that they become passive subjects, uh, if they appear at all, and uh, that and or they become terrorists or uh, the subjects of humanitarian intervention or any of the tropes that could be used to re to shed Palestinians of their livelihoods and of their humanities, those become part and parcel of the of the media narrative. And what we're seeing is that there are cracks appearing in that. Uh, and I, I just want to sort of mention some examples. I mean, all the, the examples that Nuda gave were spot on. But we need to also think about, uh, you know, when, when Palestinians are invited into these spaces, they're often invited as witnesses of their struggle, as witnesses of their tragedies, not as analysts, not as people who are able to come in with expertise to talk about what's happening because their analysis has to be subjected to what the West 
thinks is the right way of viewing certain things. And that's already in a colonial prism. It's already in a prism of American imperialism. Unless you abide by that prism, you're seen as someone who is lesser than or is, is working uh, in a structure that is misunderstood or that needs to be fought against. Whereas the Israeli narrative, obviously, it's a colonial Western narrative. It fits into that narrative. So Palestinians have always been fighting an uphill battle to be included in the media as uh, agents as the, the people who are analyzing their struggle and talking about their struggle, not as passive witnesses to what's being inflicted on them. And I think when I think about the, the, the media landscape over the past five or 10 years, I think there are huge shifts that are happening, which is the result of, of Palestinian mobilization and solidarity uh, with allies who are working to change that landscape. But specifically over the past two or three years, Black Lives Matter was instrumental in the shift that we see now because they were able to show that that kind of structural discrimination and structural violence that's in, that's present in the media, the blind spots that that you know white even white liberals have, the blind spot that they have uh, against uh, about racism, about discrimination in uh, the the discourse, the media discourse that uh, has I think shattered something that allowed other indigenous populations and other minority groups to be able to show that that blind spot actually exists beyond just African-Americans, let's say, if we're talking in the U.S. And so it's created an opening that uh, I think Palestinians are now benefiting from. And the fact that members of the squad, but not only, but that members of the squad are also bringing the Palestinian narrative into the American hallways of power, it makes it impossible for the media to continue avoiding this. So now they're trying to catch up to the story. I've, I've never been as overwhelmed with media requests as I have in the past week. And that's incredible. It's, it's just never been my experience as a Palestinian analyst, but also as someone who's worked on this for years, uh, to be flooded with a kind of uh, a sort of uh, desire to hear the Palestinian point of view and the Palestinian analysis of that point of view. So one of the things I've experienced personally is um, in, in 2012 is when I, I started to be invited to speak as a Palestinian analyst, but then it was always as a counterpart to an Israeli apologist so that I could be presented, but only in debate form, never as an expert on my own term. I had, there had to be a counterposition. And I think it was, you know, the media's fear. Later I was invited, later and now as I'm invited, thought I have to say that even though they can run my bio, um, so often I see the media placing my bio as human rights attorney and making clear at the beginning of the program, here is Noura, who is very critical of Israel, speaking for the Palestinians. It's, they have to make it clear that I'm an advocate, that I have bias, right? That I, that I, that I have a certain moral compass that's guiding me and notwithstanding, they still aren't framing me as the analyst or as the professor or as the author, right? That, that can speak about the canon as well as about, you know, what's at stake here. And so even though I do see this shift, I still see media um, tepid and, and tepid for good reason. People have been punished. Stephen Salaita had his tenure revoked. 
Norman Finkelstein was removed from his university. Mark Lamont Hill was removed as a CNN analyst for saying very basic things on the day of the international solidarity with the Palestinian people. Um, Rashid Kharadi has been defamed. Edward Said, who we all exult, was assailed because he threw a rock from the southern Lebanese border into Israel in a symbolic gesture and was framed as a Jew-hating terrorist and violent. There is deep punishment for this. The BLM knows this well. When they put out their 2016 platform, they were defunded by several um, uh, donors. Their their events were canceled by certain by certain spaces that didn't want to host their events anymore. And they doubled down and said, we will not be told how to frame our liberation. If we see it as entwined with the Palestinian people and other peoples who are subject to U.S. imperial violence, that is part of our narrative um, and did double down. But not everybody is as brave or has been as brave. And so I think that these journalists... There's a lot of people I can tell you, for example, who will whisper in my ear or send me a text, but not say anything publicly. And it's not because of what they believe, but it's because they're preserving their own interests. They want to be invited to the next event. They want to secure the next contract. And I'm not, you know, everybody has their own life to live. And this is not a moment of shaming. I am lifting this up and making it clear for people that this is, that this is a common experience. And the more folks that actually challenge this, that share their narrative, that share how they've been bullied or punished, the more of you that do that, the more we can actually break the dam. If one person gets arrested in a civil disobedience march, it really doesn't, you know, it might not make a difference because that one person will be punished. But if, if thousands fill those jails to protest against this, this injustice, then that does break the dam. That does change this narrative. So just want to emphasize, we, we should name it. We should name it to encourage people that you, your experience is not singular and that it's our collective response that'll, that will make a difference. Noura, you've written about how the U.S.-sponsored so-called peace process not only strengthened Israel's position, but weakened the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which in turn facilitated the emergence of Hamas, which was founded as an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood in 1987, but had prior to that been entirely, you know, basically non-political from its 1946 founding. And today, and Tarek, I know this is something you've written quite a bit about, Israel uses Hamas and its armed resistance as a pretext for their own brutality constantly. Tarek, how has Israel over the years sought to shape the opposition to their apartheid and occupation regime? And to what end have they been shaping it? Well, look, if we look at the Gaza Strip today, I actually think that understanding this history is fundamental for us to understand how the blockade is so sustainable. As I said uh, a few minutes ago, Hamas has created a fig leaf or offered a fig leaf for Israel to allow uh, the, the Israeli government to get away with the blockade and to excuse the blockade as a response to Hamas and to Hamas's quote-unquote terrorism against Israel. This is the product of an Israeli effort to portray any form of Palestinian resistance, and in this case, resistance armed struggle from Hamas, as a form of terrorism. Over the course of the past 14 years, a dynamic has emerged between Israel and Hamas. Uh, it's a violent equilibrium where what the Israelis do is they allow Hamas to exist 
as a governing authority that is taking care of 2 million Palestinians that the Israeli government does not have to take care of, that the Israeli government outsources their humanitarian needs to countries like Qatar and to the international community to take care of and maintains them enclosed in a strip of land that Hamas then governs, right? That uh, reality allows the Israeli government to get rid of 2 million Palestinians and to sort of remove uh, their responsibility from Israel, obviously all for demographic reasons, to make sure that Israel maintains a Jewish majority or the the semblance of a Jewish majority in this sort of architecture of, of occupation and blockade that exists. Now, Hamas plays into that in the sense that Hamas exists now as Palestinian resistance movement with its own territory, with its own base that is obviously not liberated because it's under occupation and under blockade, but where within that territory, there are no occupation forces. Palestinians can move about without being targeted or harmed or harassed or killed by Israeli occupation forces. There's a relative freedom within the Gaza Strip. Uh, that is fundamental for Hamas to develop power and to develop its own military infrastructure. So that equilibrium has manifested in uh, a, a sort of a, a lang- what, what scholars have called a language of violence. The, obviously, the violence of the blockade means that Hamas then resists that violence using rocket fire. When rocket fire reaches Israeli shores, Israel is then forced to concede. It's forced to either open uh, borders, for, uh, not borders, open the fence for a bit, allow, ease the blockade, allow some uh, trucks to come in and uh, ultimately ease life in Gaza while maintaining the architecture of the blockade. Uh, as it stands. Uh, From the Israeli perspective, what they call for is calm, which means no rocket fire and Palestinian acquiescence to the blockade. And what Hamas does is refuse to give calm as long as the blockade is in place because the blockade itself is a structure of violence. So that equilibrium has been sustainable and has worked for both uh, Hamas and for Israel for the past 14 years. What is so incredible about this moment in time is that Hamas's firing of rockets at Jerusalem took Israel by complete surprise because it overturned this rule. It overturned these rules of the game that we will uh, rocket fi- uh, fire rockets only when we need access into the Gaza Strip or when we need to loosen the blockade. And when you meet us halfway through a flimsy ceasefire, you will have quote-unquote calm until the next iteration. This process, the Israelis have called mowing the lawn, right? What has happened now is Israel refusing this game and saying, actually, we're not going to be limited to the Gaza Strip. We're going to be limited to defending Palestinians everywhere, specifically in Jerusalem, specifically in Al-Aqsa. This is an overturning of an equilibrium that has taken root over the past 14 years. And I think it's transformational uh, in terms of how also Israel is looking at uh, is, is looking at the Gaza Strip. This current round of violence against Palestinians comes after Arab governments have decisively turned their back on the Palestinian struggle with Bahrain and the UAE normalizing relations with Israel and Saudi Arabia doing the same informally as well. How did this shift come about and what does it mean that Arab autocrats across the region no longer even bother playing lip service to the Palestinian struggle? Yeah, I think one of the things that we made clear as we saw what you know are known as these normalization deals of normalizing relationships with Israel is that, you know, for many of us who have been watching this, this wasn't about 
normalizing relationships as much as it was about entrenching authoritarian regimes that were backed by the United States that are able to sustain their oppression through coercive force against their own populations. Bahrain is probably the most significant um, example of that, given that they have violently repressed their own uh, democratic uprising against their population. They've bombed out the Pearl Roundabout, which was the Tahrir Square of Bahrain, for activists, they have incarcerated dissidents, they have incarcerated their activists. Those who, um, when it came to Sudan, for example, we understood that it wasn't the Sudanese civilian government who entered into this agreement, but its military government instead, which made plain that this was about uh, the consolidation of violent authoritarianism against peoples that certainly um, harmed Palestinians, but also harmed other Arab populations, predominantly in African populations, who have been seeking a better future. Also, to put that in context, the the you know the other thing about normalizing with Israel. Let's just put that in historical context. Ever since the establishment of Security Council 242, which established a quid pro quo framework of land for peace in a very unjust way, 242 is a violent tool of oppression and dispossession in that it affirms, one, it forgives Israel of its aggression in 1967. It was never a defensive force. It was an aggressive uh, use of force. And so all the land that it occupied should have been returned um, to their rightful inhabitants without precondition, number one. But number two, 242 then enshrines Palestinian juridical erasure as it refers to them as humanitarian, a humanitarian cause and a just solution for refugees without establishing that they too shall be sovereigns. Number three, it frames that Israel will, you know, will be a permanent fixture in the Middle East and to ensure that they'll hold on to Arab territories as ransom to be returned in exchange for permanent peace. Now, let's, the Arab, this was passed unanimously at the Security Council, notwithstanding this tremendous violence. But even in the aftermath, what that land for peace framework should have ensured is that the land would be returned to its rightful owners in exchange uh, for permanent peace with Israel and as other Arab nations who had more leverage because Israel, with the support of Henry Kissinger, refused to recognize that Palestinians can negotiate at all for their lands. And, and, and this becomes even more clear after 1973. Um, but what the Arab regimes who have had leverage, and especially Egypt, um, because of their, you know, they're the largest Arab country, the largest military, the track, they, they had the largest territory, the Sinai Peninsula occupied, is that they should have negotiated and insisted on Palestinian participation, should have insisted on an enduring concession for Palestinians. But when it entered into the 1979 Camp David peace accords with Israel, it exacted nothing. It exacted nothing in exchange um, beyond the return of the Sinai Peninsula um, on behalf of the Palestinians. Um, this was seen as a tremendous affront and led the Arab world to condemn Egypt and specifically Anwar al-Sadat in that moment. Jordan becomes the second in 1994 when it enters into a normalization agreement and a peace treaty. But in Jordan's case, it was also conceding that this was not its jurisdiction, that this was the West Bank and Gaza were to be negotiated by Palestinians. And then what we see now 
is um, a ripple effect of all of these authoritarian regimes entering into these agreements, again, without exacting a single enduring concession at the very, very least, none of them have demanded that the siege be lifted. They have given us this false narrative that what they gave us was uh, forcing Israel to retract from its de jure annexation of, of the Jordan Valley, but the Jordan Valley is already de facto annexed. So they, in, in effect, have done nothing. They have done nothing. And what the Biden administration has done, because this is in effect a reshuffling of a geopolitical terrain within the Middle East that now aligns Israel with several Arab governments and regimes um, that fractures a divide that was once Israeli Arab and now becomes U.S. sphere of influence versus an opposition um, to the U.S.'s um, uh, continuing penetration in the Middle East. Um, and the Biden administration has basically picked up and continued to play with the cards and the table that Trump has set. This isn't a surprise for us on the left who never thought for a second that Biden was going to become an anti-imperialist. But it is worth um, reminding, you know, listeners that um, there is a no, not only have they not moved the embassy back to Tel Aviv, which also would be a shortcoming, not only have they not changed at all their approach to uh, their protection of Israel at the Security Council and elsewhere or their um, military support for it, uh, but they, they are also in lockstep continuing the Trump administration's agenda, which liberals were so fervent and excited to condemn, but are now silent. Tarek? I don't have much to add. I just want to say one thing. I mean, I spent a few uh, days in the UAE recently to try to understand uh, uh, how this normalization agreement was put forward and what kind of impact it had on the ground. And I want to say two things that I came away with in terms of observation. The first is that there's a lot of fear around any kind of opposition to the agreement coming from Emiratis as well as from the Palestinian diaspora in the UAE. And uh, that's not to say that there aren't people in the Emirates who are supportive of this deal and who are sort of pushing for normalization. I'll come to that point in a second. But that is to say that this deal is very much a top-down deal. It is one that is possible because an authoritarian government is putting it forward with little regard for where the people are and what the people desire in terms of the foreign policy of that government. But the second, the second point is that I was shocked by how Zionist the Emirati discourse is around things like we are a self-made nation. We built ourselves up from the bootstraps. We're living in a region that is committed to violence and committed to instability. We are fighting Islamism. We are, we are fighting the backward trajectory that other um countries are committed to. And that vision is what shapes and, and sort of supports much of their exposure to or, or sort of desire to link up with the Israeli state. They see the Israeli state as a counterpart, as another regional power that is committed to their regional vision. Obviously, it's a, region, a regional vision that is anti-democratic, that is maintaining stability rather than reform and rather than change and rather than greater human rights and, and, and the, the sort of everything that the Arab street stood for in 2011. That's a vision that's bringing the UAE, that's bringing Bahrain, that's bringing other countries countries in collaboration with 
Israel. And it's a vision that is regional. So they see the Biden administration or uh, the U.S. generally as no longer a trusted ally that can maybe support uh, the, the, these regimes if the Arab state mobilizes. And so they're looking for other allies in the region, uh, allies that would equally be threatened by any kind of popular democratic mobilization in the region. It's through that lens that we need to understand the normalization agreements. They are shared military, economic, uh, diplomatic agreements in which people, the Palestinian people are collateral damage, but so are all the other communities in the region that are mobilizing for greater change or more democratic change uh, in the region. I think it's been very interesting over the past two days, seeing what's happening in the Emirates and in the uh, in, in, in Bahrain, Bahraini media channels in which we're seeing time being given to the Palestinian struggle. Suddenly, the UAE and Bahrain are shamed by the fact that they had uh, thrown the Palestinians under the bus through the normalization agreements, and they're trying to position themselves as uh, supporters of that, or at least putting through the airwaves the narrative that, you know, we're still here, we're still listening to the Palestinian struggle. The, the, what has happened on the ground in Palestine today shows how shallow the normalization agreements are and how brittle they are because they are based fundamentally on the idea that Palestinians have been defeated and that they can be swept aside and acquiesce to their defeats. Uh, and all, all we're seeing is a complete renunciation of that. I want to talk about Israeli politics where it seems as though the imminent contradictions of settler colonialism present since the very beginning of Zionist settlement have really come to the surface. Likud and even more extreme right parties dominate. Labor has all but collapsed. And Israeli politics are in a state of permanent crisis as Netanyahu's repeated inability to form a majority leads to election after election as he seeks to evade prosecution for corruption. Did the Zionist project make labor Zionism impossible? and the right-wing dominance that we see today inevitable? I mean, I think it's very difficult to sort of think about, you know, what might have been, but I would err on the, on the, the line of saying that this was in some ways the natural culmination of what the Zionist project is in Palestine. It was always meant to be uh, the creation of a Jewish homeland in historic Palestine. And I think the expansionist nature of that project began and expanded under labor, not under Likud. So we're already thinking about a false division between Likud and labor or right and left in Israeli politics, which does not go to the heart of what uh, is, is in truth already a settler colonial project that is looking to displace Palestinians. Now, I, the reason why I say it's difficult to say what could have been is because there was a moment in time when the Palestinian leadership, wrongly in my opinion, acquiesced to partition and legitimated a project of settler colonialism on the majority, 7-8% of their homeland. And in doing so, created an opportunity where there might have been partition and there might have been a continuation of a process where Palestinian citizens of Israel do in fourth or fifth or sixth generations think of themselves exclusively as Arab Israelis and where Palestinians become restricted to 22% of their land and that partition exists. And that could have been the product of a peacemaking industry committed to making the survival of a settler colonial state in the land of historic Palestine viable. But make no mistake, that outcome would have already been a legitimation of something that was deeply, deeply problematic, a structure of violence that would have already disenfranchised millions of Palestinians from their rights. Now, it could have happened. 
And there's a million ways that we could have argued about the historical projection of how Zionism unfolded in the land of historic Palestine. But it is, we are at a moment now where the, the arrogance and the greed of the Israeli political establishment, which is fed by an international uh, carte blanche that allows them to maintain a structure of expansion and, and colonization uh, with impunity, that overreach, that greed has allowed the, the Israeli political system to think that they could move forward uh, and get away with it. And I think what we're witnessing now is a backlash of that moment. Part of the reason that I think the current moment in time is so inspiring is because it sort of goes to the heart of rejecting not just the expansion. It's not just rejecting the settlements. It's not just rejecting the blockade. It's going back to the roots of the Palestinian struggle and rejecting the fundamentals of what the Israeli state is today. And I think in doing that, it's going back to this idea that, you know, partition may have been a pragmatic, quote unquote, compromise that the Palestinian leadership may have been cornered into. Even the Palestinian leadership today might still think that that's the only, quote unquote, feasible way to go forward. The truth of the matter is that that would have been a compromise that is too high for the Palestinian people. And now I think Palestinians are reclaiming their agency and rejecting all forms of compromise. They're rejecting all forms of partition because actually the issue isn't what, what liberal, labor Zionists could have given us if they hadn't gone into settlements. The issue is that there was Jewish settlement, Zionist settlement in the land of historic Palestine. So the issue is rooted in 48, not in 67. And so, you know, regardless of what the political differences are within the Israeli political system, there is a fundamental issue that needs to be addressed. And, and that, I think, is what we're seeing in specifically in the Palestinian citizens of Israel rising up today. Nura, what do you make of this trajectory of Israeli politics just towards new and new right-wing extremes and the fact that the, just the fundamental contradictions of Israeli Zionist politics and society seem increasingly impossible to reconcile? So I would add uh, a couple of things only and, and just affirm that there, I think it's fantasy for people to believe that there is a significant distinction between labor and Likud. It was a labor government that actually initiated uh, the settlement um, enterprise in the West Bank. It was a later labor government that oversaw the settlement expansion within the newly established state of Israel. It was the labor government that established the first 350 settlements that oversaw the martial law regime against the Palestinians who remained, who established, who adopted all all of the British empire's emergency rule um, and place them discriminatorily on Palestinians in order to continue a process of removal and um, implantation of Jewish Zionist settlers. So that we don't see Likud be, uh, even come onto the politi Israeli political scene until 1977. So to then make this about, you know, lamenting, oh, but labor actually had a vision. What, what, what we should lament is the beginning of Zionism, 
which was, you know, for, for some was a, about not just an establishment of a state within, in Palestine, but had something to do with a vision for Jewish emancipation that gets co-opted by a Western civilizational analysis and a colonial framework that basically sees brown and black bodies as redundant either redundant or to be exploited. So that would be the first. The second thing I wanna say is that the Israeli left has been decimated. And I would blame all of the liberal Zionists who have insisted that you approach Israel as an ally and a friend, but without accountability, without punishment, without forms of sanctions, right? That's what we saw in J Street as it continuously blocked attempts to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel out of one side of its mouth, but insist on some sort of equitable outcome on the other side. You can't have that, right? The Israeli left has been decimated, especially since the second Palestinian Intifada, and are now part, are now, you know, I get texts from people who are as Jewish Israelis afraid to go out into the street because they'll be attacked as well. Or Jewish Israelis that are afraid to sign on to petitions because they will be punished as well. And so in fearing for their own, you know, their own forms of um, vulnerability are not speaking out on behalf of Palestinians and have allowed and paved the path to the ascendance of a settler, um, Israeli settler movement to the center of Israeli government, to its helm. Um, what I find really shocking is it seems to be that no matter what Israel does, how much it speaks its own truth from its own mouth when it says, we're going to turn Gaza into a parking lot. Ayelet Shaked saying that Palestinian mothers give birth to Palestinian stakes or saying that, you know, chanting death to Arabs or organizing themselves in Jewish Zionist gangs with the protection of the police to attack other Palestinians. It seems that irrespective of all that, there is somehow a congenital inability to contend with the fact that Jewish supremacy and anti-Palestinian racism is constitutive of the Zionist project from its liberal flank to its most rightist core. It is about preserving Jewish Zionist supremacy at all costs. It is after that preservation and achievement that you they then begin to think about, well, what can be then uh, given to the Palestinians now? What's insult to injury is that in that aftermath, in that afterthought, we're also expected to then compromise with those crumbs. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out The Dig. But you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus is, as the title suggests, to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the Global South. That's an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from scholars like Mike Davis, and subscribe and print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash digcatalyst. That's 
bit.ly/digcatalyst. For the decades that labor Zionists ran Israeli politics, it seems to me as though their pairing of settler colonialism with racially exclusionary forms of social democracy, and in the early years, of course, the celebration of the communal life on kibbutzes, that this all provided liberal apologists for Israel in the West, particularly in the United States, with the means to portray Israel falsely, of course, as this progressive force in the Middle East. But now that liberal mask has been torn off and the brutal violence and racism inherent to the Zionist state has been revealed. Do you think that that's played a critical role in shifting politics in the U.S. and elsewhere? Look, I think I, I yes, I do think that it has played a role, but I want to emphasize here that we shouldn't over exaggerate what this moment has done. There have been instances in the past, in the history of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, where liberals in America, especially liberal Zionists, are horrified by what Israel is doing and by the images that are shown on their TV screens and are shown on their headlines. And then the next day, they fall back in line. They fall back in step with this idea of uh, Israel and the U.S. sharing certain values and being uh, having a special relationship with Israel being a close ally of the U.S. I'm thinking specifically about the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon and the massacring of Palestinian refugees in the Sabra and Shatida camp. That was um, a turning point for many in the U.S., who looked at what had the, who looked at the pictures that were coming out from that camp and were reportedly horrified that this state that they thought was a weak state in the Middle East that was always defending itself against much stronger armies could put forward that kind of carnage and could destroy to the level that it did in Lebanon. And it was a, a bursting of, of their bubble that this is not the state that we thought we were supporting. And look at us now in 2021, we're having a conversation about whether this was something that could burst their, their the, the sort of, and by they, I mean liberals who often support Israel as a bastion of democracy in the Middle East, not realizing that in doing that, they're already internalizing such reductionist racist language and, and misunderstandings and mis- misinterpretations of what the, the Middle East is. So... I do think that the the media is is catching up to this shift and and the the level of violence and the images that we're seeing are obviously factors in that but I don't want to overestimate to to underestimate the ability of spectators and peoples to fall back on on rhetoric that was already shown to be problematic and to stay stuck in a cycle of thinking the violence that they're seeing today is exceptional rather than fundamental to the state project. I want to turn to Palestinian politics. How has the current political landscape in Palestine with Gaza under Hamas rule, the West Bank run by the PLO dominated Palestinian Authority and nearly two million Palestinians inside Israel. How has that all shaped the current moment? Who is leading the Palestinian movement? And could this present moment of violence and struggle, could it change the balance of forces within the Palestine, within Palestinian politics and within the national movement? And I know you're asking it for the audience, but I want to point out that I get asked it all the time. So I'm not responding to you. I'm, resp- I'm using your provocation as an opportunity to also tell folks about when you hear this question, what is the subtext? The subtext is not genuine curiosity. The subtext is either to deflect uh, another reason why they can't support Palestinians in the worst case scenario, 
or in the best case scenario, to express some sort of ignorance over the fact that Palestinian leaders have been targeted, imprisoned, detained, deported, assassinated, and unable to develop a leadership. So that's just on the big question. In regards to Palestinian politics themselves, Palestinians for a, you know, a very long time have been struggling against their own leadership, which has been unaccountable, unrepresentative, and absolutely inept for especially since I would say um, the Hamas won the parliamentary elections in 2006, for example, the Fatah-dominated Palestinian Authority has spent more time and effort to defame Hamas and to try to politically overcome them for authority than it has that it has spent energy in resisting Israeli apartheid and settler colonialism. That is a tragedy. They have recently been part of the collusion, have participated um, and colluded in Israel's siege of Gaza in order to exact uh, political support from the Palestinian base so that they abandon Hamas and support Fatah. They have used their platforms at the United Nations in order to attack advocates who have spoken on the siege of Gaza and the PA's complicity rather than supporting those voices in order to end the siege. They have become a completely, I think, especially the Fatah-dominated Palestinian Authority, lacked vision lacked courage, lacked direction. They have been stuck, you know, thought it was talking about Oslo and partition. One thing I want to highlight is that a lot of Palestinians, a significant number of Palestinians supported partition um, in 1988. It was part of, you know, rewriting the Palestinian Declaration of Independence. It was a broad-based support and what Walid Khalidi described as, as the most revolutionary shift in Palestinian thinking. That was not the betrayal. The betrayal was Oslo, which entered Palestinians not into a framework of partition, but into a framework of autonomy where we would never even get the state, but at most be getting and gifted what um, our Bantustans or uh, reservations. Since then, the Palestinian leadership has been acquiescent and thought that if for 20 years Palestinians couldn't um, get home through resistance, perhaps they can get home through acquiescence. And so under the leadership of uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinians have done everything that the U.S. And, Israel, uh, and Israeli governments have asked for. They have colluded in arresting Palestinians to protect Israel. They have sub subjugated themselves to unequal colonial economic frameworks. They have not resisted um, and, and brought Israel to account at the United Nations, as we saw during the first 2008-2009 large-scale onslaught when they revoked the Goldstone Report from the Human Rights Council. And what have they gotten in return? More settlement, more Bantustans. They got the Trump's deal of the century, which was basically an apartheid framework made permanent. And so the, the Palestinian landscape is quite dismal, and yet nonetheless, Look at what's happening. Look at how the story is reverberating and the, and, the, and the sea change we're witnessing. And that's because it's a Palestinian movement that continues to rise up despite the odds against them and despite an inept leadership that is not supporting them. And yesterday called for the, you know, a large Palestinian general strike without even a central organizing political party. That is the strength of the Palestinian liberation struggle. Tarek, uh, do you see the balance of power, leadership, direction of the movement 
changing. You've written about the rise of the rights space movement for Palestinian liberation across historic Palestine in response to the just total failure that Noura was just talking about of the Oslo two states framework, which has shunted the Palestinian Authority into managing disconnected West Bank Bantu stands in coordination with Israel, marginalized Hamas in Gaza, and sidelined the struggle of Palestinians within Israel. What what is this rights based movement? What's its proposed model, and how how is their critique faring, especially right now in the midst of this current moment? How is it faring in the face of established Palestinian leadership? First of all, I want to say that if we look at the history of the Palestinian struggle for liberation from its earliest days, even before the creation of the state of Israel, we have a long and very proud history of the Palestinian street calling inept leaders to shame. We have a history, a very long history of Palestinian elites selling the Palestinian cause for pittance and getting called out by revolts and revolutions that go on for years and years. Because ultimately, this is where the the democratic uh, claim of of what Palestine is and what Palestinianness is and what our Palestinian struggle is all about, ultimately is in the street. And I think what we're seeing today is the 21st century reiteration of that, of the Palestinian street saying, actually, you know what, the Palestinian Authority, Hamas, they have become two factions that are engaged in a zero-sum game that put their own factional interests ahead of the interests of the Palestinian people. For whatever reason, they've acquiesced to partition, they've acquiesced to Oslo, they've been acquiescing to fitting into political structures that are not serving the Palestinian people as a whole. And the Antifada that we're seeing now is a shaking off of that, is a refusal to have the Palestinian cause be limited and reduced to these political factions and to the power structures that have been created by design specifically to limit Palestinian liberation rather than to allow for it. Now, in that sense, I think that's the biggest upheaval that we're seeing now. That's the biggest change that's happening in the in on the Palestinian political structure, which is that the street is rising up to say those politicians, uh, that even the one, even the PLO that has international uh, diplomatic and legal power is not right now the representative of what the Palestinian people want and who they are, the street is. Now, that is a fundamental shakeup. But there's another change that happened over the course of the past week, and I think it's one that is very difficult to talk about, you know, based on our conversation now about where the, the media is, uh, but also fundamental to understand. When Hamas began firing rockets in order to protect Jerusalem from Israeli aggression, it was opening up space for Palestinians to reclaim agency and for Palestinians to be in a position where the the right to self-defense is not only a right that Israel and the Israeli Jews can claim, but also that Palestinians can claim. By the time their first rocket had fallen on Israeli territory, 500 Palestinians had been injured in Jerusalem. But the first time we we heard the international community talk about the right to self-defense. It came when the first rocket uh, entered Israeli airspace. And so what happened is a fundamental shakeup of this idea that actually Palestinians have to be acquiescent to have uh, any kind of concessions from Israel or to move forward or to be accepted by the political uh, community. The struggle that we're seeing now is a struggle that has to be expansive. It includes popular protests and people in the street, but it also includes armed 
armed resistance. It should be armed resistance in the form of, in, in accordance with international law, and it should safeguard the lives of civilians. But armed resistance is a, an appropriate way to deal with a militarized regime that is bent on killing and destroying Palestinian lives. And so in that sense, that's a fundamental shakeup that's happening in Palestinian politics, because it's not only breaking out of the idea that we need to be passive, that has the Oslo straitjacket that has informed what the Palestinian Authority is, but it's also created room for the Palestinians to see that in their political engagement, there are different facets of struggle. There are legal struggles and there are military struggles and there are popular struggles and there are economic struggles in the strikes and in the in the economic sanctions that are being called on. And all of those are different forms of struggle that are serving the same cause and that are moving us all in the same direction. And rather than sort of the divide and rule that had informed, you know, the difference between the PA adopting diplomatic measures or Hamas adopting military means and people being uh, restricted from even move, moving or protesting, we're seeing a shaking up, we're seeing a shaking off of that. And we're seeing a sort of a more inclusive discourse that is making room for different forms of struggle against a single regime. Do you think we might finally see the end of the Oslo, the zombie Oslo framework? That's just been restricting Palestinian politics for so long? Is this is this the beginning of the end of that? That's a really good question. You know, um, I, I've been talking within my my compas and my colleagues. Well, what is what is the next horizon? Because in 2014, during Israel's last onslaught of the Gaza Strip, which wasn't the third necessarily in six and a half years, but the 22nd since Israel's withdrawal in 2014, uh, when it announced its withdrawal in 2004, then we produced a pedagogical project that wanted to rehabilitate Israel's wars on Gaza within a settler colonial framework that emphasized that warfare and siege were other forms, uh, tactical forms of the, of the settler colony in order to remove and replace and dispossess Palestinians. Now in 2021, I think that that's become obvious right, as Palestinians rise up in an intifada of unity. And so we've been asking ourselves, well, then what's the next horizon? If if now this has been, you know, catching up to understand that Gaza is not separate, but Gaza is part of the Palestinian struggle. And by the way, the separateness has been deliberate since 1993, when Israel first developed the first enclosure around the Gaza Strip, not as we know that it developed the enclosures in the aftermath of Hamas's uh, parliamentary win. In any case, so when we think about what's the next horizon, this has been precisely the issue. Can we make this the final and formal death of the Oslo framework? There is abundant analysis. There was analysis on the day after when Edward Said wrote his essay. I think he published it in the London Review of Books and said, the morning after. He then publishes that essays, you know, demonstrating the failures of Oslo that Yasser Arafat bans from being distributed amongst Palestinians and then prevents him from even coming to Gaza to address the first human rights uh, conference because of his dissent. But since then, there has been abundant analysis that has shown the limitations of Oslo as a trap, that there is no promise even of a state. When I wrote my own book, I examined also thinking that I would use my legal scholarship, you know, expertise to translate the legalese into a language people can understand to see just the unjustness of it. But when I read the documents, I realized you do not need to be a lawyer to understand this. You merely need to be literate. 
So the question I answered instead was why did the PLO enter into this and how did Israel achieve this, right? Since 2000, some would have, I've been a part of the chorus that said that the peace process has been dead since the second Palestinian Intifada when Israel besieges Yasser Arafat in the presidential compound, ultimately kills him and adopts a, a program of assassination against the Palestinians whom it is supposed to protect. Since 2000, we have seen a shift from a framework of occupation of Palestinians to warfare against them, even as they are under their domination. It is so grotesque. It has been time to abandon Oslo. The problem is, is that the, the kind of in the Westphalian framework and through diplomatic capitals, they rem remain beholden, not to the Palestinian grassroots movement who has been insisting upon this shift, but have become, have remained beholden to the so-called Palestinian official leadership. And that leadership has been dragging its feet because it doesn't have a plan and it won't move aside to let others take that space as it wants to maintain its, its, its power so to speak. Tarek? Yes, I agree with everything that's been said. I think that the Oslo framework, I, I think, is more sustainable than we would like to hope for various reasons, including that by design, it was made to create systems of dependency that cripple Palestinians. So Palestinians now have an extremely high cost for mobilizing and for protesting. They might lose their livelihoods. The Palestinian Authority in, in the West Bank uh, employs the majority, or not the majority, but a significant uh, proportion, possibly the majority of the uh, eligible workforce in the West Bank. So the, the system has been designed to be sustainable. And we've seen the, the Palestinian leadership accept uh, the, the restraints and the chokehold of the Oslo Accords and be unable to break out of it, which was my point in the earlier question about the, the street forcing the Palestinian leadership out of what has become a trap for them that they have been unable to shed on their own. And the other point here is that the Oslo project is not necessarily only restricted to Israel-Palestine in the sense that there's international investment in this project. It's a project that's meant to manage the status quo. It's a project that's meant to sustain a level of stability or quiet in Israel-Palestine. And by quiet, it's obviously quiet for Israel and Israeli Jews who are able to go about their life without feeling the cost of the occupation because they are entirely protected from understanding what the regime that they're living under is doing in the rest of the territories. Uh, but uh, that is an ex but, but but on the other hand, for Palestinians, there are, is obviously no quiet because they are living under a regime of violence uh, and what what Noura calls rightly a regime of assassinations. But the the pain that Palestinians might feel is acceptable to the international community. Their measure of what is unacceptable is Israeli Jewish fear or Israeli Jewish insecurity or Israeli Jewish economic uh, disenfranchisement. So. Under that rubric, it's acceptable for the status quo to continue as long as possible. And quite frankly, uh, many diplomats that I speak to tell me that it's more uh, desirable to have the status quo and to, uh, to maintain this current trajectory than to move into a new reality because the new reality is a reality of possibly instability. It's a reality of disruption. And my question to them is always disruption for whom? Because this reality now is a reality that is 
sustainable and it is a reality that is uh, one that can be tolerated if the only prism that you're looking at is the prism of uh, Israeli Jewish uh, security or Jewish lives as versus the lives of the entire inhabitants who are living from the river to the sea. And so the Oslo Accords are, there's a lot of investment in maintaining them and in maintaining this as a conflict quote unquote, that can be managed indefinitely. So, you know, I would hope that this is a turning point. Uh, but I think as Palestinians, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that the international community and our own leaders don't fall back into the same straitjackets that have held us back. Tadek, I wanted to follow up on a point you made a few answers back about how violence is represented in the conflict. Today, Israel constantly points to Hamas rockets that have killed a very small number of Israelis to justify just repeated massacres of very large numbers of people in Gaza. But just a few years ago, Israel got away with massacring civilian protesters at the border with Gaza. How how is it that any form of Palestinian resistance, nonviolent or violent, is delegitimated at the same time as Israel's overwhelming military assaults are normalized? And what role in particular does the demonization of Hamas and then Hamas, the demonized Hamas's association with Gaza, what what role does that play in it all? I think let me start by talking not just about the role of violence, but just this, this framework in which Israel has been very successful at pushing forward in the Western discourse and in the international community, which is the framework of terrorism. When we think about what's happening in the Gaza Strip, the first thing that most Western diplomats or media would think about is that the Gaza Strip is a terrorist enclave and that the blockade is put in place in the Gaza Strip because Hamas came to power and took over the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip has been a a pain for Israel since Israel's establishment. And the reason for that isn't because uh, Hamas is in power or Hamas is in the Gaza Strip. Hamas was created as a movement in 1987. The reason is because the Gaza Strip has 2 million Palestinians, the majority of whom are refugees and want to return to homes that are now in Israel. In order to deal with that reality, the Israeli, successive Israeli governments have dealt with the Gaza Strip through isolation, through bombardment, through excessive force, through sanctions, through through, uh, uh, threats of expulsion. Uh, the, The violence that has been directed at the Gaza Strip long predates Hamas. What Hamas has done inadvertently is provide the Israeli government with a fig leaf. Now, suddenly, there's an excuse for the blockade of the Gaza Strip. Now, suddenly, there's an excuse for the use of excessive force, and that excuse is terrorism. And so in that kind of framework, in that framing, if this is the the sort of the uncritical narrative that we want to hold on to, there is no excessive force, because what is being shot at in the Gaza Strip are not people. They're terrorists. So when we have protests at the fence of Palestinians marching to return to their homes, and we have uh, Israeli snipers uh, literally snipering off uh, unarmed civilians and medics and journalists, and we have the International Criminal Court carrying out an investigation and showing that Israel is is, uh, possibly violating international law and carrying out war crimes against uh, protesters and, and civilians in Gaza, that then becomes excused under the rubric of terrorism and under the rubric of self-defense. What gets lost in that story is the fact that the framework itself, the, the structure itself of the blockade, of Israeli military rule, of the occupation, is itself 
far more violent and far more lethal and far more oppressive than any violence that has gone back into the Israeli territory or against Israeli civilians. Now, I say that while fully condoning, while, while, while fully rejecting any use of force against civilians, that is my own moral compass. And I do not think that civilians should be targeted. And in that sense, Hamas's indiscriminate rockets are, for me, uh, beyond the pale. However, in thinking about the structure of the violence that we're talking about, there is no symmetry when we think about uh, what the Palestinians are doing in terms of their armed struggle for liberation and what the Israelis are doing in terms of sustaining and recreating and reproducing a structure of violence that has lasted for since the creation of the State of Israel that is fully funded and fully uh, protected diplomatically by members of the international community, first and foremost being the U.S. Nura. Again, everything that I said, and I'll add a couple things. Number one is to just, you know, highlight again. I, I think your listeners are much more critical, Daniel, but I want to highlight a few things again for the listeners. Number one, all people who are under racial regimes, colonial domination and alien invasion have the right to use force. This is sanctioned within a framework of international law that in 1977 was, you know, captured in the second additional protocol, uh, first additional protocols, article one, subsection four, in the heyday of third world revolt. Palestinians now, as they use force, seem to be out of you know, out of time because they're the last outstanding, one of the last outstanding agenda items on that third world agenda, that anti-colonial agenda. So that's number one. Number two, Israel has been dominating and using violence against Palestinians well before Hamas was established in 1987. It occupies Gaza the first time in 1956 when it has to withdraw at the insistence of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who's concerned that um, Israeli, British, and French aggression in the Middle East can create a space for Soviet intervention. But they occupy again in 1967, pass a secret resolution that basically, you know, wants to bring Gaza within its power grid because Zionism has an insatiable territorial appetite. Hamas isn't established until 1987, doesn't launch its first rocket until 2001 in response to the advent of Israel's assassination policy of Palestinians who are already under occupation. So anybody that is paying attention and then uses, you know, wants to look at the Hamas rockets as an equivalence or somehow that there's this you know, there's just warfare and that everybody needs to stop. Um, one needs to pay attention that stop for whom? After those, after that spectacular violence ends, the structural violence continues in the form of siege, in the form of apartheid, in the form of settler colonialism. And, you know, it reminds me of uh, Franz Fanon's observation that liberals are only concerned when violence, when the natives begin to use it. And so for me, my message would be to those listeners who are so concerned uh, with that with, with that violence. And if you want to forefront it and make it an equivalent and, you know, I think thought it was right that to, to, to distinguish between the legitimate right to use force 
versus the indiscriminate use of force, which is frankly not because uh, I think because Hamas is recklessly targeting, which it is, um, but they don't have, they have crude weapons. They're under siege. They don't have access. So make that distinction at the very least. And the second thing that I would say is that if you were truly concerned about an end to violence, then you have to call for the demilitarization of Israel. You have to demand that it sign on to the non-proliferation treaty. You have to demand that U.S. Uh, military support be conditioned at least to U.S. laws. I would say cut it completely, right? You have to call for sanctions on Israel. You cannot say that you've de-escalated this moment without ending the siege. The siege cannot continue. There is no military solution. Israel admits there's no military solution to the situation in Gaza, which means that at the very least that we cannot move forward and accept again that we enter into another cycle, as we've seen, uh, without ending the siege on Gaza as the bare, bare, bare minimum in this moment. I want to close by talking about solidarity politics and ask you both what your assessment is of BDS's track record in the U.S. and elsewhere, because unfortunately, one often reads more about anti-BDS victories here than BDS wins. But are there ways in which BDS has been successful, even though its formal demands for boycott, divestment and sanctions have yet to be won? So let's just emphasize something that Palestinians have been saying over and over again. BDS is the floor, not the ceiling. BDS is a tactic that we are asking our our, uh, solidarity communities to take up with Palestinians, but is not the liberation framework. It has deliberately and specifically punted any political questions about the future of, of, of Palestinian leadership and Palestinian liberation and said that we can't answer that question without a broad swath of Palestinians participating since the decimation of the Palestinian Liberation Organization But what we can do is insist that any solution include these right-based frameworks, right? So again, I just want to emphasize that this is the ceiling, not the floor. It is a tactic and it is the least that people can do. I also want to emphasize, you know, as powerful as BDS has been because it's given participants in this violence, especially U.S. taxpayers, to be accountable, Right. It's also reflective of just how hollowed out Palestinian resistance has become due to the U.S. and European attacks upon it. Um, legal efforts have been framed as lawfare. Military efforts have been framed as terrorism. Grassroots efforts have been framed as anti-Semitic. BDS has been framed as anti-Semitic, even though it's non, you know, the most canonical form of nonviolence. Um, marches on the side of Gaza have been framed by Israel as Hamas's new tactic. They have left Palestinians with almost no forms of legitimate resistance in in Western eyes, right? And so BDS then becomes, what BDS also represents is the fact that it becomes dependent on the solidarity movement to take up the mantle, to believe Palestinians when they speak, and then to exercise their agency, not because Palestine is just another issue in the world, but because specifically it is the responsibility of the United Nations, which legitimized the state of Israel in the form that it did without more conditions. It is the responsibility of the U.S., which is sustaining Israel's violence. It is the responsibility of the European Union, which has participated in this violence by containing the status quo rather than 
resolving it. And so I, I still encourage people to participate, but I would say that this is the least that can be done. Tarek. Absolutely. I agree with that. And I would add one thing, which is to say, not only is it the responsibility of the international community, I think that Palestine is a part and parcel of the struggles that other people have elsewhere. And the, the you know, we cannot separate what Palestine is from what the, the BLM struggle is, from what the struggles of other ind indigenous peoples are. I think that the, the Zionist uh, settler colonial regime that exists in Israel today is a product uh, of what American imperialism looks like fighting Palestine is a fight that also means uh, advancing and progressing the rights of different uh, communities and indigenous peoples and, and minorities elsewhere. And so in that sense, I think that solidarity needs to be uh, to de-exceptionalize Palestine, to, for, for all of us to think about what this struggle is in ways that bring Palestine out of this silo and put it in with the rest of the struggles that we're all facing. Nura Erekat and Tarek Bakoni, thank you both very much. Thank you for having us, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Noura Erekat is a human rights lawyer, professor at Rutgers University, co-founding editor of Jadalia, and the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Tarek Bakoni is a senior analyst for the International Crisis Group on Israel-Palestine and the author of Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance. A special thanks to Chris Tonsing, who was the editor of the Middle East Research and Information Project, or MARIP, when I interned there two decades ago. Thank you, Chris, for helping me to prepare this interview. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or whatever sort of platform, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews do help introduce us to new listeners. But more than that, telling your friends about the show, that's what really matters. Tell them why you listen, why they should listen, etc. Please do make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this podcast up and going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 